As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now for the podcast. But first, I need to talk to you about this wonderful new opportunity. Ever wonder what game you should play? Ever wonder why I'm not having fun? Well, boy, do I have the product for you. Swag will bring you the relief you desperately need. Ask your doctor if swag is right for you. <laughs> I always assumed you weren't having fun because I was around. No. So this is a podcast about board games. It is called So Very Wrong About Games. We talk about board games. Mark, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Always good. First, we're going to talk about the game we reviewed 11 months ago. Then we're going to talk about the games we played this week. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our topic of the week, which is a probability, which everyone just says randomness. But we're going to use the word probability because we're learned like that. Sure. Mark, what game did we play exactly 11 months ago? Well, technically, next up on the docket is a game by Phil Eklund, but we don't talk about Phil Eklund games anymore on the podcast by virtue of the fact that his games essentially contain hate speech therein. If you're curious about the policy, I would refer you to episode number 152, where we articulate it, or indeed several episodes of So Very Wrong About All the Games You Like Are Bad, which is our Patreon-exclusive show where I editorialize about things. We've talked about this a number of times. So instead, we're going to talk about the next game on the do docket in our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment via Eurus, which is Warhammer Age of Sigmar Warcry. Which is sort of like, I guess it's like the new Middenheim revisited or an advanced underworlds or however you want to look at it two gangs face off in the underworld of Warcry, and we tried it once 
<laughs> once we, we no, were, we, we reviewed I'm it. Sorry, once. we reviewed it. I should <laughs> say we reviewed it once. We played it multiple times because that, that, that's absurd. We don't play a game once before we, re- we play it like half of a time before we it's review. It's true. It. We sort of like just throw the couple rule. turns maybe. Well, we throw the rule book on the table, and as the wind slides through the pages, whatever pages we get to briefly look at, we have to form. An oh, opinion. that's more than I do. I just lay the rule book on my forehead and hope that it seeps in through osmosis, and I get an impression from that. Well, needless to say, <laughs> with this very limited knowledge of the game, we weren't. I wasn't super taken by it. I have, I've had no uh, inkling to revisit it. The stuff that I've seen, like I, I follow Games Workshop quite closely because I like all their Underworld stuff. I love all this new stuff that's coming out with Curse City, but anything that's coming out for Warcry, I haven't been overly excited with. Yeah, so there are some specialist products that you like partially by virtue of nostalgia and partially by virtue of their quality. Me, I was was never a Games Workshop person, but a lot of their specialist games I have some enthusiasm for. And I like Blackstone Fortress. I think it's clever in a lot of ways, albeit too easy. We go back and forth to Warhammer Underworlds every now and then. We get the pull and it comes back in. We have a deep and abiding love for Space Hulk. And a number of people whose opinions I respect quite liked Warhammer Warcry. And we found it just the most generic, bog-standard kind of everybody scrums up in the middle, pitch dice to kill things game in the world, which is not objectionable on its face, but man, was it dull. Yeah, especially when you have so much nice terrain. I think it's all coming back to me now. I have this fabulous terrain, all these really cool walkways you can run across, cool places you could fight, but no, we're going to mash in the middle instead. More or less. So we have not gone back to Warcry. In fact, uh, a listener wanted wanted our copy of Warcry, so I sent it off to, to them. And so that's it. So that was what we reviewed last year, Warhammer Age of Sigmar Warcry, which still to this day remains uncredited, which is a policy that we do not approve of. Ga- games designers, even if they are sold their soul to Games Workshop, should have their work acknowledged. And now on to the games that we played this week. Mark, you and I got to play a game called After the Empire. This is designed by Evan Halbert and Ryan Malk and published by Gray Fox Games. This is sort of a throwback. I don't want to say a toy. I, I'm going to call it more of an experience, almost like an experience type game. You get to build your little fortress. You start off with a wooden one and all these, it's like a uh, tower defense or a fortress defense. I'm going to call it because I'll talk about more about it in a minute. And the troops come in and attack and you have to have everything in place because you, you get a little bit of you know, reaction to what's going on as they attack, but mostly you have to have all your ducks in a row before all the attacking happens. And then it sort of plays itself out and hopefully you can defend yourself or you get sacked. Uh, when I read the rules, I thought, oh my God, super generic work placement. It worked out exactly like that. It's pretty well, you know, get some food, get some resources. But for me, it's all about the, the, the tower defense, building your little fortress and and holding out till the end. I love this type of game. Mark, what did you think? I have been accused in the past of occasionally using very strong language when describing the merits or lack thereof of certain games. And I've been informed by my attorney and my therapist that I should use me statements. I hated this game. <laughs> I hate After the Empire. You described it as generic worker placement. I would have loved to play a generic worker placement game. As of round two in After the Empire, 
And we then kept going. So first of all, I'll just flag its length. We played for about two and a half hours in a three-player game, which is easily two hours longer than the game merited. The toy factor is nice. There are these lovely, chunky plastic pieces that constitute your towers or your walls. I would have liked it if they played up that a little bit more, if they'd had a, a better sense of ownership. Again, comparing it to something like Agricola or even a game like Beyond the Sun, to think of, of something we're going to talk about later, which are games that could have been generic worker placement, but feel a little bit more polished than that. You get to feel a sense of ownership of what's going on. You get to look down at your farm in Agricola and say, this is my farm. It looks kind of cool. It looks different from your farm. We kind of ended up in the same space, but I've got different stuff. Similarly, in Beyond the Sun, we have different tech trees, which encourages us to develop along different lines and specialize in different things. And the toy factor for After the Empire was a little bit undercut by the fact that at the end of the day, you just have two different kinds of walls. You build your four walls. You build as many towers as you can. Okay, that's it. There's only then they come in two flavors so you're you're always trying to and by the end of the game our castles were more or less identical yes they could have done like a layout change or different types of troops or ways you could you know advance you know all sorts of stuff yeah i would have have forgiven a lot for new toys in worker placement you can tell a lot about what is going on by virtue of what spaces are hotly contested what spaces do people go for first the spaces that everyone went for first were get three stone get some wood get some iron. Not exactly gripping. And a lot of the things that you have to do more or less every turn constituted a worker space that was on your private board. And so at a certain point, I was I was wondering, why bother? Couldn't you just bake this into the round structure to some extent? Make it so that when I have turns to make, I feel like I'm doing something cool rather than every turn kind of bleeding into the next. Like, okay, well, I need more stone and then I need to repair my walls. That's exactly what I did last turn. And it's probably what I'm going to do next turn too. And there you go. Yeah. Like why even include that worker? Like you're going to be either repairing or building more of your castle every turn. I can't see a turn you're not doing that. So like you said, why even put it there? Why not give it free? At the end of the worker placement, everyone gets to use up their resources and build up their castle. Absolutely. And like you said, there are some other cool toys there. There yes. are There are uh, people you can buy. There are buildings you can build. But you're dedicated to repairing walls that were destroyed or trying to improve them so they don't get destroyed. So a lot of these cards are missed out on. Absolutely. More emphasis on that would have helped tremendously. And the, the the biggest offender, though, to me, in terms of not being able to take it seriously as a competitive endeavor, not that every game has to be taken seriously as a competitive endeavor, but the tower defense element, namely the enemies that come in, by the midpoint of the game and then going onward, you see 20% of what is going to be coming after you. The rest of it is completely face down. Now, as it happens, it tends to shake out so that you're just mostly just attacked from all sides. The draws that we had were relatively even, and so we had relatively even forces attacking from all all the different places. But as you say, this completely undercuts any ability to plan your defense. You have some number of soldiers, and you know what's coming up from one of the cards, and so you allocate the soldiers to defend against that, and then you've got these other soldiers left, and I have no idea where they're going to come. I guess I'll sprinkle them a little bit everywhere, or accommodate for one of your weaker walls or what have you. But it, it just meant that what could have been a set of decisions turned into busy work, followed by a reveal to say, oh, well, if I'd known that was happening, maybe I would have done something differently, but I had no way to know. So there, the own, I was surprised when you explained the rules. I thought there was going to be some mechanism to look at the face-down cards. Usually in games of this ilk, where you're going to be assaulted by face-down threats, whether it's something as crazy as Galaxy Trucker, or whether it's something as determinate as, you know, an actual war game or other versions of tower defense, there's some nascent ability to scout out or react. 
But in After the Empire, what you have is a complete set of unknowns, a very small about the, the only way you can do it is this is one resource, which is very parsimoniously introduced, which allows you to move a single soldier to a different wall once you know what the, the opposition is. I was expecting that to be far more prevalent because, you know, defense and yeah. planning. So you could have like a really cool diplomacy phase where there's some stuff introduced and lets you look at the cards, lets you turn them and you see, oh, they turned it that way. So you can sort of have like this battle of where the cards are going to Oh, that go. would have been deep. Yeah, something like that. And, and the, even the, the orient, the, arrange them in whatever order would matter for some reason. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just something like that would be very interesting. Those are good suggestions. It would bring two huge elements in the game, more player interaction, and mm-hmm. like you said, being able to slightly adjust for what is coming at you. Absolutely. And when you're sacked, which might just be because there were a couple more troops coming from one direction that was your 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 least good direction. I'm referring to, of course, the direction of your castle defense, not the boy band. I was somewhat disappointed at the lack of representation of boy bands in this game. Of course, I'm generally disappointed. BTS. I mean, BT-dubs. And so you get sacked. You lose a whack of points. There's this idea of maybe you want to stay behind because then the threats will hit you less hard and then you want to surge at the end. But there's no opportunity to surge, really. It's mostly about steady income. So the trade-offs there weren't quite as pointed. But after you're sacked, you get a bonus worker. Well, guess what? Three of your workers are going to have to go and accommodate for the fact that you just got burned to the ground anyway. A worker to repair your infrastructure, a worker to repair your walls, and a worker to heal some of your now dead soldiers. So, honestly, it it felt like a grind. I felt like I was just grinding and I didn't really get a chance to play with cool toys. I was very disappointed. And I was disappointed a bit by the layout as well. Like we said, there's very few worker placements that you actually get to go to. And it's this giant board and where all the interesting stuff happens with your fortresses off to the side. They could have had the fortresses in the middle with the worker placements around the outside. So like more people are invested in what the other people's doing. Cause it's like a, during our battles, it was all heads down. It was like, well, okay, well, how'd you do? Okay. How'd you do? Okay. Yep. On to the next one. Well, now we'll, you know, all get together and do this very interesting worker placement in the middle. Are you going to get the last stone? Yes, you're going to get the last stone. I guess I'll get the last iron. Okay, then you're going to get the last wood. All right. All of this being said, I'm going to keep it for a little while longer. It plays great solo if you have a little bit of time. You just set it out and, you know, you know, set up your defenses and have the people attack in. It was perfectly fine playing it solo. So this is After the Empire, produced by Gray Fox Games. On the topic of Beyond the Sun... Beyond the Sun, which was a very high on both of our top tens last year, is now on beta on Board Game Arena, and I will say that the online implementation is pretty good. We have been playing mostly asynchronously, although I've played a I also played a synchronous game last week. And I'll say that this is the first time I've ever played a beta game on Board Game Arena where I've noticed bugs, which is high praise. Mostly by the time a game gets to beta on Board Game Arena, it's solid. I've encountered a couple of strange corner case bugs in Beyond the Sun, and that's fine. It, well, it has a lot of weird things that happen, right? When you choose a card, you get some bonuses, and it, it does have a lot going on, for sure, though. That's true, and you can you cannot play with the asymmetric player boards, nor can you play with the face-up technology draft, which are the two ways that we prefer to play Beyond the Sun. All of that having been said, it's still very, very enjoyable. It's not terrible asynchronously. There are a couple of events that pop up that cause the game to come to a grind, which are the bane of asynchronous games. You know, someone triggers an event where it says, every player may deploy a ship into deep space. It's like, well, the circumstances under which you would choose not to are somewhat niche, but of course, for the sake of the implementation, everyone has to then pitch in and make their decisions. So that's another, you know, few hours or a day of waiting, which is okay. 
you have, to, you have to know what you're getting into. But I am still enjoying Beyond the Sun. I find the level of variability to be just right. You get a little bit of specialization, a little bit of planning ahead. The fact that you can produce every turn is so, so nice. Because again, compared to After the Empire, where most of your actions are just getting the bare bone resources, in Beyond the Sun, it's tacked on at the end of all of your turns. You get to do something interesting and then possibly save up for more exciting turns at the same time. So it's just that little bit of extra extra fluidity and a little bit of extra flexibility that means that you get to do more exciting, more engaging, more fun things. And on top of that, you get to experience all the different little lovely texts. You get to see your old favorites come back again. Oh, mass cloning. I love you, mass cloning. Mass cloning is probably my favorite. And one of the advantages of it being online is that you get to figure out some puzzles. Like sometimes when we're playing in person, you don't want to hold up the old game. You know, I, I really need one extra, you know, worker this turn. I need to make sure I get that in the turn. And you're trying to work it out and you just don't want to hold up the game. So you just do maybe, which could be a suboptimal move just so you can get the flow moving again. But here you could say, I need one worker. Well, if I, if I take this action, it'll give me this benefit, which will let me move this ship, which will give me the production I need on this planet, which will, you know, so it's like sometimes you can get these really cool puzzles figured out to get what you need for, you know, the, the turn that you really want to do what you need to do. That's a good observation. The, an, another excellent thing that Beyond the Sun does, which a number of heroes do when they're of such quality is you have to plan ahead because all the technologies have prerequisites. Well, the level twos and threes and fours have prerequisites. And so you can't let yourself be caught with your prerequisites out. But at the same time, somebody could reveal a technology that you weren't interested in pursuing and it's so good or it fits in so well with what you need to do medium or long term that you need to readjust. And that combination of forward planning and, and adjusting on the fly coupled with the fluidity of the production really makes Beyond the Sun a thoroughly enjoyable Euro experience. Or that, and you just don't want to let them take that action over and over again. So, uh, yeah, you want to get Some of us aren't spiteful like you, Walker. Oh, Mark. (laughs) Speaking of online games, on our stream, we played Keyflower. Every Saturday morning, we get together and we stream on Twitch. This week was Keyflower. Next Saturday at 10.30, we will do Hollertau. So those who want to see how Howard Hollertau works by Uwe Rosenberg, it's a great, his new greatest release. Until his next worker placement came about farming, which will be his next great release. Yes. So that'll be this Saturday coming up at 1030. Yeah. Come holler at your towel. Yes. Why? Why do you do this? I like to mangle the English language because you do it to me so I often. I know, it's so true. So Keyflower, this was designed by Richard Breeze and is put out by R&D Games. This is a a sort of auction worker placement game that we all love. And and this game worked out very well. Did a lot of things I don't normally do, like i.e. using tiles that were still in the auction, using other people's tiles, doing more transportation and upgrading and, you know, looking, planning ahead. Just the fact that Keyflower was a game that, you know, we'd play like one, I'd, I'd used to play like about once a year, but now since it's on board game arena, playing it much more often but like I said, I'd only play it in real time. I would never play it uh, turn-based again, that's for sure. Oh, no, I don't think I'd play it asynchronously. It, yeah. It's funny that you put it that way because Keyflower to me, I'm not saying that I don't want to uh, play it more than once a year, but Keyflower to me is a great example of one of the reasons why I'm happy to maintain a collection. I'm not saying that that's the only way to be a gamer or the best way to be a gamer, but we're talking about a game that's almost 10 years old now, and I love being able to come back to it every few months. I love the fact that it's available in rotation 
Uh, this would be true whether or not it were available on Board Game Arena. I love being able to come back to it because it's such a joy. I find Keyflower, the artwork, the cleverness of the action selection, the way things are interweaved, the progression of this uh, of the seasons, it's just so pleasant and happy-making in that way that really quality Euros tend to be. Now, if I played Keyflower all the time, if this were the kind of thing that I played it every day or every week for months on end, then some of the features of Keyflower would start to rankle. One of the aspects that I find less than ideal is sometimes the quality of your bid is dependent on knowing how deep other people are in certain colors. For example, I don't know whether I should bid red or yellow on a certain tile based on whether other people are have a lot of red or, or yellow meeples. Is this a thing that I could have been tracking? Yes. Is this a thing that I would enjoy a game? Were I tracking all these transactions? No. So I don't do it. True. I don't much so much track it as you sort of look at the boats. And we made that observation. It's like, look at all the blue. So you see, oh, there is, you're right, there is a lot of blue, and look, there is no yellow. So therefore, you know, these few yellow that I have, I gotta make sure I play them only on my own tiles so I know that they're, you know, they stay in my rotation. That's true, you're right. You can do it sort of. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I wouldn't, I know I wouldn't like, you know, see which boat people are taking and how many they have, but just like a general, like what's in the, in the general table supply. Yeah. Now, you can track green workers, and that part I really quite like, because green workers only enter the system by virtue of specific tiles, and if somebody starts racking up green workers, you know that, and that's fine. That's okay. Uh, you know, and, and Keyflower is one of those games, kind of a bit like Dungeon Lords, where you get to build something, but I feel like I'm never able to build enough. I look at the, I look at my village at the end of Keyflower, and I figure, that's it? It's not that I didn't enjoy the game, or that it took too long, it's just I, I I'm like, this is... I liked building this up. I'd like to have a little bit more to show for it. And I feel the same way about Dungeon Lords. Contrary to Keyflower, I feel that Dungeon Lords is kind of pushing to the edge of acceptable length. But Dungeon Lords, it feels like you barely get started building anything, and so you don't really have much to show for it. And so, again, these are the kind of uh, problems that I would have if I were playing Keyflower all the time. But I love playing it. And if even if you're not going to keep it in steady rotation for every season or so, that's a Keyflower shadow oh, you see right there. Then if you are a little bit burned out in Euro games or a little bit burned out in auction games, you should really experience the way it combines the two. It's quite fascinating and quite clever. So I'm very happy to have returned to Keyflower, and I look forward to playing it again, as, I, as I'm as i sure I will for years to come. Well, you said you wanted more of a village, so I'm sure the next release will probably be called Key Campaign, and you'll be all set. See, well, that's the other thing we talked about in the context of Keyflower. People were comparing it to other key games, and I can't remember which key game is which, other than Keyflower, because it's my favorite. There's Keyflow and Key Village and Key Harvest, and I'll be, I, I can't remember which one's which. <laughs> that's true. So this is also up on YouTube now, so if this conversation intrigued you whatsoever, the, our gameplay is also up on YouTube, so check that out. If you would like to listen to grown men insult each other over the movements of tiny little meeples around pastel village tiles, might I direct you to our live playing of Keyflower. If you want to understand when I say Mark is mean and actually see it happen in real time, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> We also got to play Black Rose Wars. Now, we have played Black Rose Wars a couple times, and this was my first experience playing multiplayer with all the Kickstarter goodies from the Sator box. Uh, the Sator box having the Sator square on it. And if you're unfamiliar with the Sator square, it's, it's really quite fascinating. It's a palindrome that works in lots of different directions. And so instead of having six schools of magic that are in the game every time, you select six schools of magic from in excess of a dozen different schools of magic. And that was my primary curiosity headed into the game about seeing all the new spells. Because one of the joys of Black Rose Wars, 
other than the visceral joy of just blasting somebody else's face off, is that every turn you get a whole bunch of new toys. Every turn you draw from the decks and you get to take keep two from drawing four and you can draw from whatever schools of magic you want. And I like that. I like the feeling of constantly new stuff being injected. It helps keeps the game feeling fresh and moving, even the context of a, of, a, of a single session, even if you've seen those schools of magic before. Also helps take a little bit of the edge off of the, the luck of the draw, as the case may be. And this was also the first time playing where all of the evocations, all the summons, namely, were replaced by figures. So at this point, we're talking full opulent buckets of plastic mode, and I really liked how a lot of the new elements worked. I thought that some of them were downright clever. There was a new school of magic that relied principally on manipulating a summon that was impossible to kill, but anyone could control it. And so it's like, well, I cast the spell that means that every turn I get to make this thing do this thing, and someone else does something else. And Dewey really took to that. Yeah, it's like a conduit. So, it was, you know, kind of cool. You just like sort of like blast energy into it and it would do your bidding. It's kind of cool. Yeah, precisely. Back and forth. And I, I, I still really enjoy Black Rose Wars. You can't take it too seriously. The primary offender here are the event cards. I think that if you actually took out the event deck and some of the weirdnesses of the quest deck, you would actually have something that's pretty deterministic by virtue of the fact that we're all drawing from the same pools of, of spells and the spells are reasonably deterministic themselves. They don't have random effects. You don't have to worry about randomly hitting somebody or what have you. And the scoring elements, I think, in terms of the area majority scoring, in terms of killing somebody, really helps to make it feel more like a, a, a Euro contest than it actually is. Uh, but the events can be really wild. Like, we pulled an event that said, whoever's winning loses two points, everyone else gains two points. Well, that's just silly. But you have to know that that's the kind of thing that might happen going into it. I think you just really need to explain to people what kind of game they're getting into. Because I think this would be really bad experience if someone's looking for something that's, you know, a little more deep. Because... The game is driven, like if you're a keener and you want the victory points, then you get these quests all the time. So you have to sort of try to accomplish these quests. And it's kind of hard when you're getting random, I don't want to say random cards, but you're getting a, a different assortment of cards every time. You don't really build your deck. You're only drawing two off the top and then, you know, a bunch of new ones. So you sort of have to figure out how to accomplish this quest with the cards you get every turn. So it's sort of like sort of this, you know, every turn you can't really plan ahead. Well, not round on round. I, I, I tended to treat every round as a new new set of puzzles, as a new tactical challenge. Uh, you seem to have, and this is not a criticism, just an observation, you seem to focus on the quests a lot. Uh, because when we talked about Black Rose Wars last, you were also complaining about the, the specific interaction of the quests, which is fine. Just there are other ways to go about getting points, which are, are it's, but it's a question of focus. And if the game doesn't, uh, doesn't, pitch itself towards your level of priority that's the that's a mismatch between you and the game and also partially the game's problem i will say this in terms of and this, this relates primarily to quests which is why i'm reminded of it i think it's long past time that all the game designers of the world got together and just stipulated what a round is and what a turn is oh my god it, it is overdue now we, i think we all need to agree and we, we both have strong views on this a round is a series of turns and you can have various elements of that round, but then we all have to agree what those elements of the round is. Because the way Black Rose Wars, the particular offense is action phase. When no, when many people hear the term action phase, they assume, well, I do my two actions and that's my action phase, right? No. Action phase is everybody's actions for the entire round, which itself is called something else. Anyway. And we uh, need to summit, Mark. We need to. Yes. The boxes need to get to a conform size. Absolutely. And these, these, these people need to stop putting the name of the game on the back of the cards. 
Okay. This, this okay. needs no, 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 to no, no, stop. No, no, no. We, I, I respect your other hobby horses, right? <laughs> these, these are legitimate positions. My Another one that I would really like to see, which would cause far more controversy, I think, in a lot of ways, is we need to settle whether initiative is low going high or high going low. But I think what we need to do is we need to focus on the low-hanging fruit first it's, because it's I don't true. think anyone has firm ideological commitments or aesthetic commitments to what round or turn or phase mean. We just need to stipulate it so we can cease this confusion because normally the rules explanation for Black Rose Wars took hardly any time at all. It's like, well, are these cards, this is what the targeting information means, uh, this is how we kill each other, go to town. But then I keep I kept forgetting. I didn't even consult the rule book before teaching the game before because it there's a lot going on, but it's relatively straightforward. But then I forgot about the fact that the quest cards refer, make very specific reference to units of time. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> and that, so everyone's like, so this quest says I have to do all this. How long do I have to? Uh, and yeah. that was the issue. So that was a little bit on me. But I agree with you. Game designers of the world unite. Let Black Rose Wars be uh, an example of how not to do things, because not only is it different from all the others, it's it's not intuitive. But again, maybe do an Italian speaker, because these are Italian designers. Maybe in Italian it makes more sense. But we all need to agree what these words mean, and then just settle it forever. Yeah, it could be just like a translation problem. Maybe just the translator decided to use whatever terms they thought worked best. It's possible. That is Black Rose Wars. Next up, we got to play a review copy of Command & Colors Samurai Battles. This was given to us by GMT Games. This is a game designed by Richard Borg. This is yet more in the standard of Command & Colors. You put out, you have a scenario where you put out a bunch of troops, and then you start drawing cards because the battlefields divide up in three sections. In three sections. The cards will tell you which sections you get to activate, and then you get to roll some dice and kill some pieces. And you get to give people shame. <laughs> shame. It's not so much that you give them the shame, it's that they feel the shame. It, 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 it's from within. That actually, so I've got a lot of feelings on Command Colors Samurai Battles, I've got to say. As you say, this is a long-running series. It's now f even further in the standard war game advice. People often ask, which game in the series should I try first? And my answer, when it comes to historical war games, is always the same. Which period interests you the most? You can do Napoleonics, you can do the Second American Civil War, or the American Civil War, as most people call it, or the First American Civil War, the American War of Independence, as I call it. Please send all hate mail to supportedarecanada.ca. You can do the Second World War. You can do sci-fi with Red Alert. You can, anyway, my favorite is the Napoleonic Wars. I, I love the Napoleonic Wars, and I love that version of Commands and Colors. I also really like Battle Lore Second Edition. That's more of a fantasy flight gig. Anyway, so Commands and Colors Samurai Battles. Number one. Male pronoun used as gender neutral in the rulebook. I can't remember the last time I saw a game published in uh, past 2020 that did that. And this is a contemporary release. Uses the male pronoun as neuter. Don't do that. Stop. Another thing is the Orientalism really got, uh, bothered me. Because some of the game elements, which I'll get to in a minute, are really quite nice. This notion of the shame of retreat causing potential morale problems for this, the rest of your army. But it's just draped in so much reductive descriptions of how Japanese people fight. Or, or how warfare worked during this particular period in Japanese history. Because, quite frankly, when you compare it to other periods of warfare and other theaters, the same could be said of them, but there were white people fighting, and so we don't other them in quite the same way that we do. For, for example, one of the most famous instances in all of the Napoleonic Wars was when the old guard stopped in advance. And the cries of Le Garde Recule shook out throughout the French army, and that's when morale collapsed, and that's when Waterloo was pretty much finished. It wasn't Blucher showing up, it was 
largely attributed by many scholars, not exclusively, but as a contributing factor when the old guard stopped advancing. But we have this story about how, well, you know, samurai were very ashamed to retreat. Samurai retreated all the damn time. There are samurai generals that were famous for their use of the retreat in battle. But we don't tell this story about, like, Kunktator during the Punic Wars. The first successful Roman general against Hannibal was a guy who ran away all the time. But we don't tell the story about the Roman Empire being, you know, inveterate cowards because they didn't value martial discipline. There's nuance and there's subtlety that we give to white people that we don't give to Asian people. That bothered me. I got it all over Commands and Colors Samurai Battles. On top of that, there's magic in the in in some of the special cards you play. That bothered me too. Ooh, the mystical orient. You play these mystical How about how about the seppuku in the middle of the battle? <sighs> yeah. So all these things that were like, you know, flavor for the individual period, there's a way to do it with a certain deft hand, and there's a way to do it in a very blunt kind of simplistic way. And I felt that for a lot of it, it was the latter. It was the blunt kind of simplistic way. All of that having been said, mechanically I adored it. <laughs> <laughs> What you end up with is elite troops that are extremely good at what they do, that ignore flags and are very, very hard to make retreat. But if you can crack them, if you can make them retreat, the consequences can be devastating. Similarly, you have these leaders that play into that, but they are very fragile. They're very, very strong on offense, but the moment they start taking casualties, they might die, and that can be crippling. And so you have to care in a way that you don't in other Commands and Colors games about who to devote when. Very much like, I would say, people used guard troops in Napoleonic warfare. So when I'm playing Commands and Colors Napoleonics, for example, I can throw the old guard against whoever I want. I can take Russian guard grenadiers and commit them to whatever fight I want because it don't matter. And that's a little ahistorical, and it's a little gamey, and it doesn't really feel very satisfying. But here, in Commands and Colors Samurai Battles, if you've got a unit of heavy samurai attached with a leader, you have to be very careful about when you send them against what, for a variety of relatively simple but satisfying mechanical reasons. That part I loved. It had this weird kind of push-your-luck on top of the standard uh, standard decisions of the Commands and Colors series, which I was already prone to appreciating. Yeah, and like I said, a lot of these Command and Colors games are... Or adding these decks to the side. And like you said, it's a little magic-y, this one. Yeah. But but still, I think it balances out what we're going to talk about later. This this randomness it, it gives you a sense of, you know, smoothing it out a little bit. For the most part. There were some offenders that I thought were prob- that were pretty problematic. Now, this is not about me being salty because I was just – I was as I said, I was appreciating what was going on mechanically. But there is one card that you played, which was a ninja assassin. assassin. I don't know – were there ever any ninja that were actually running around in the middle of massed battles during the either, you know, during the Tokugawa period or, or during the Sengoku Jidai? I don't know. That sounds a bit dodgy. Whatever. Again, Orientalist. Which basically says target a leader. There's a one in six chance that the leader dies, giving you a victory point, which is usually 20 to 25 percent of, of. Maybe I just poisoned you the night before. That works, too. That works, too. It struck me as the kind of thing that was either going to be too much or too little. Because it constitutes the entirety of your secondary card play for the turn. Because you can only play one secondary card per turn. They're called dragon cards here. Because, of course, you know, Far East. And it costs you some degree of your currency. I think it was two. And five times out of six, it's going to do precisely nothing. And then one time out of six, it's going to be massive. I would have been far more in favor. And you could have even done it thematically. Where it's like, this card costs a very high number, say five. And you get most of it back if you fail the roll. 
that can help balance out the odds. It also makes it feel less fluky, and it feels like, you know, it's, it's slightly more of a calculated gamble, more than just a wild stab in the dark. Anyway, there, there are also a lot of cards where the wording is a little bit suspect. There's, there's a huge disagreement online, by the way, about that specific card, about whether the dead leader actually gives the person who played the card the victory point. Because the rule book, I have to say, the rule books for the GMT Commands and Colors games have turned a very, very simple game into somewhat difficult to parse. I usually find it very difficult to find where to, to look up specific rules in the GMT Commands and Colors games, which is bizarre because most of the time GMT rulebooks have lovely numbering systems making it easy to find everything. And furthermore, other companies manage to publish Commands and Colors games that present them as simple as they are. As I said, I have a lot of feelings about Commands and Colors Samurai Battles. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So this probably said something like, you know, if the leader dies in battle, then you get a victory point. Whereas now, because we killed him with a card, it's quite not not so people black and that, white. People that are not us are having that concern. We had no, we we didn't even question it. So the leader's dead. You get a point. That's all there is to it. it. Well, I think it would it would make a huge difference if you didn't, because sometimes there's a limited pool of victory points you can get from your opponent. Sure. And if you take that away, then that. That would be very detrimental, I think. That's a good point. This all being said, I think playing this game really showed me the age of Command and Colors. It was this, I want to focus on a particular side of the battle. I don't get to draw the right cards. And even even if I happen to draw the right cards, now I'm starting to roll dice, right? So it's this randomness on top of randomness. I'm not saying it doesn't lead to a balanced system because you really need to sort of make sure all your flanks are in working order. If you really need to like concentrate on a certain flank, sometimes it can be very frustrating. Uh, we'll have I'll, well, I'll have more to say about this later when we start talking about finessing probabilities. But I have I still have tremendous enthusiasm for the commands and color system. The specific fights in the samurai battles version are less bloody than a lot of the other versions precisely because just the way that the, the the dice are constituted. If two infantry units are fighting each other in, say, Memoir 44 or Battle Lore 2nd Edition, there are far more hit results on the dice available than there are in Samurai Battles, and that's even before you consider the fact that frequently many of the infantry units are armored and start to ignore additional hits. And so you tend to see a lot more attacks that do one or no damage or attacks that just result in a lot of things being ignored, which I tend to appreciate in terms of balancing out the randomness. So I like the commands and color system generally. Mechanically, I like almost everything that Samurai Battles does, but I have a number of quibbles about the way it's presented historically and culturally. So I am, I, I mean, I'm always looking forward to my next play of Commands and Colors. Again, I prefer Napoleonics, but that's largely because of my enthusiasm for the historical period. One thing I will say as a final note to compare Samurai Battles to Napoleonics is that Napoleonics, when you're teaching it to somebody for the first time who isn't steeped in the historical background of Napoleonics, can be very daunting. It's like, wait, what's the difference between grenadiers and guard grenadiers and Cossacks and dragoons and all these other things? In Samurai Battles, it's very simple. You have light, medium, and heavy infantry, two kinds of ranged, and then horse archers and cavalry. That's it. Go to town. And they don't have complicated formula about, well, this is number of blocks plus one or whatever. So it's a lot simpler to keep the unit differentiation in mind, which feeds into that lovely little element of push your luck that I talked about, where more valuable units, it, it gets more costly as they start to retreat. And that is Command and Colors Samurai Battles. Oh, that reminds me about another 15 minutes of things I wanted to say about the game. 
I got to play an interesting game on Board Game Arena called High Clue. This is sort of like a code names type game. It's very interesting. There are, I think, five words up there, and they all have different uh, shapes on them. And then everyone draws a card, and it'll tell you what shape your word is. And it's very possible that multiple people have the same word. And then there is a pool of about eight words, and you have to sort of build clues towards your word. Right. And I think there's a, you know, a scoring thing. You can pick a bunch of words, but you're going to get less points. So you pick up a bunch of words and then everyone tries to guess what word yours is out of the ones that are there. I thought it was very interesting. I think it worked not too bad on board game arena with, you know, asynchronous turns. You sort of have time to look at the words. You're not under any rush. And it's, it was a nice light little game to play. I'd love to try it in real life as well. That is high clue published by Tiger Board Games, designed by Will Leaf. Contrary to popular opinion, Walker, I've never claimed to be a smart man, and that is one of the reasons why I decided to give Jasco Games tremendous quantities of dollars so that two YouTube personalities could uh, design Street Fighter the Miniatures game and then deliver it to me. I have a long history with Street Fighter, and I have a fair degree of enthusiasm for it. Even now, in my teenage years, I was actually reasonably competitive in the tournament circuit. And so I finally got to play Street Fighter the Miniatures game. I had zero expectations for this to be any good at all. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised. It was okay. Yeah, this is what I, I keep telling. Everyone asks me, you know, how was it? And I said, what are you expecting out right. of a Street Fighter game? And I think it delivered everything that you would expect from a Street Fighter game. I think one thing has to be mentioned up front, which is to say that the miniatures for Street Fighter the Miniatures game are not by a small margin the very best I've ever seen in any board game context. Yeah, and this, we're not, because we are sarcastic sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to make sure this is not sarcasm. Perfectly think, think sincerely. Fantastic looking miniatures and then multiply that by 10. I, th- I cannot I They're big, express. they're well detailed, they've been very, very well painted. There is, there are lovely bits, flashes of personality everywhere, including on the bases. It, it, it really is astounding. And it, it, it's therefore a bit of a shame that the maneuver element of Street Fighter the Miniatures game was, I thought, the most disappointing. Where people are on the board is not terribly consequential. If you compare this to other games that are either licensed or seek to emulate one-on-one fighters, I'm thinking primarily of Battlecon and Exceed. Sacra Arms. Sacra Arms as well. Where you are and getting into the ideal range, what would be called footsie in an actual fighting game context, it's practically non-existent. You could be playing Zangief, who always wants to be next to you in your face, versus, say, Sagat, who wants to range people. You get a free move at the start of every turn. Sagat can just back up in his turn to get to his fireball. Zangief can eat it to the face, and then in his turn, get right back into your face the next turn. So it was largely irrelevant. Sometimes you get an extra damage here from pushing somebody into terrain. Sometimes you get an extra damage there from being at the ideal range, which you can definitely move to easily. Anyway, so what you're left with is a lot of hand management. The hand management, I thought, was surprisingly solid. There was a a built-in rock-paper-scissors element of somebody plays an attack face down. It's either going to be a special, a projectile, or a strike. And if you can guess what they're attacking you with, you can counter it, usually doing a couple points of damage in the process. So far, so Yomi. And I actually preferred it to Yomi because the range there, not so much in terms of positioning, but at least gives you some guidance or some context into expecting what kind of attack the person's going to go against you. And so that, I thought, was 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 really well done. But the problem is, you can only do that for so long before your hand starts to dwindle. So you have to worry about that and trying to set up combos, which, eh, 
it was okay. It just depends on what kind of character you were. We were we were playing Sagat versus Blanca. They don't combo a whole heck of a lot. Some characters apparently do more, and I've got tons of characters, so some of them might combo a little bit more. So I mean, my, my misgivings are. Uh, storage is a bit of a beast for a very, very simple game. It was very expensive. The representation of women is terrible, but it's Street Fighter, so it, it, it's what you would expect. And it didn't feel a whole heck of a lot like the characters were being themselves to me. Like, yeah, they're called the right things. And then the names of the attacks are a shout-out. But honestly, in terms of gameplay, it made me want to play more Exceed, because Exceed felt more Street fighter to me. The personality of the characters seemed to come through. I wish there were more properties that had in Exceed that had characters that, that really motivated me. Uh, but BattleCon still has tons and tons of characters that I really, really like. So yeah, it, it made me appreciate what those games are doing more, but it also made me appreciate the the double-think aspect as, as was interpreted in Street Fighter, because I thought that it was definitely better than Yomi and a lot of other elaborated rock, paper, scissors games. And oh my goodness, it, it is nice to look at. Yeah, and I really, I really enjoyed the combo system. So when you play cards, it had these symbols on either side that was very much like Nightfall. If anyone's played it, it's this werewolf sort of deck building. Werewolves and vampires. And vampires and un- yeah. everything. It had uh, the oh, kitchen yeah. sink that attacked people too. Um, it had a very interesting combo system, much like this game, where it had symbols on either side of the either side of the card and you had to match up the colors and if you could then you could keep doing these attacks and have ultra combos and all the rest of it and not only were the miniatures look very nice but the battlefield you had these cherry blossom trees and bridges and and you know it made for some very nice pictures and i think overall it was a it it could very well be one of these interesting games that you bring out once in a while and if you ever you know have a friend that's really into the the game as well you could pull it out and i think they would have a wonderful time playing I have half a mind to try it multiplayer. The modes seem like the most tacked on multiplayer modes you could imagine. But maybe I may, like I said, I had zero expectations for the core game and it was pleasantly surprising in a number of ways. So maybe I might want to give it a shot multiplayer. And I will just add one note. The European fulfillment for this game has been a disaster. At best, Jasco Games has been aggressively over-optimistic in terms of what that and shipping charges would have to be. At worst, they've been borderline misleading, and there have been a number of European customers left holding the bag, and my heart goes out to you. I'm very, very sorry that you've been treated this way, uh, and I, I feel it would be somewhat irresponsible to not at least flag this ongoing problem of fulfillment. And those, and for those wondering, you do – there is a mode where you get to attack the car. Oh, yes. And there is a, a versus boss mode as well that we have yet to try either. It's true. Either. Either. Either way. Either and, way. And those – are you done? And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Well, the 15th annual Golden Geek nomination started today, which is the 12th of April. And they are go- the nominations will go on until the 21st. And then voting goes on for a week and a half or so. And then the results will be done on May 1st. And we'll know the outcome shortly after. And they've mixed it up a bit this time, Mark. Instead of having just one game of the year, there are now three categories for game of the year, light, medium, heavy, and it will give you, you can vote any game you want into these categories, but it will give you a small prompt because all of the games on Board Game Geek have a weight number that I knew was there, but never looked at before in my life. But if you pick one that's out of category, it'll it'll tell you so, and, and you can force it in anyway or you can say okay i didn't realize people thought this game was so heavy and therefore pick something else so light medium heavy i'm not sure exactly what the number 
scale is in between those, but there are three. And then we have, I'll just go with them very quickly, just because maybe some people never uh, look at them. There's the two-player game, artwork, card game, cooperative, thematic, war game, innovative, expansion, print and play, solo, podcast, and board game app, video game. Sorry, what was that second to last one? Podcast. Oh, crap. This is the only time I ever say anything. I, I like when we get nominated because it gets our game, our name out there. We don't really advertise. This is really the only time I ever say anything. Let me tell you the same thing that my father tells me every day. There's no room for losers in this family. Your intensity is for crap. Win, win, win. It was an honor to be nominated in the past couple of years. Vote for us or not. I mean, we'd like it if you did, but you know, we're not going to pressure you. Yeah, like I said, I just like it when our names – some people see our name that haven't even heard of the podcast and they might give us a listen and it might be something they want. It's yep. really our only form of advertising that we do. And I did leave one out, Mark. You'll love this one. I'm not sure if you look through them all. It's called The Best Zoomable Game. Yeah. Like, let's let's workshop a better name. Let me think. I can think of one. Oh, it took two seconds. Best Internet-Friendly Game. Ooh, that was hard. Well, that could imply a number of things. Look, I'm, I'm sympathetic. Running award shows like this is hard, and you're you're catering to an audience that loves to categorize and loves to criticize other people's categorization schema, right? And, well, we didn't criticize. We just pointed out that it was an inevitable consequence of the previous setup of the Golden Geeks, that the whole, you know, wingspan of Palooza happened last year. And credit where credit is due. Elizabeth Hargrave was one of the first people to say, this structure needs to change. <laughs> and so it's partially her suggestions that have led to the current redivision of Game of the Year being split up into three. Uh, I have to say that every time I've ever seen Elizabeth Hargrave exert any influence over the hobby or make any statements about anything, I've always been in favor of the effect that she's had. She's 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 a credit to the hobby, and she's a marvelous, marvelous influence on all manner of things, and uh, the Golden Geeks are no exception. So if you're at all interested, go and nominate your favorite games uh, and or maybe uh, a podcast or two. Yeah, yeah that'd be nice. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. So Mighty Boards, the publisher that could out of Malta, is going to be publishing a spinoff of a game that we have a fair degree of enthusiasm for, that game is Vengeance, and they are going to be producing a game called Vengeance Roll and Fight, because Roll and Write is too passive for them, so they are going to be releasing a Roll and Fight. This is going to be designed by Gordon Kalea, the designer of Vengeance, along with David Turte, he of every solo mode imaginable, and Norley Lubbers. And it's going to be released in two different boxes. It's going to be kickstarted sometime later this year. We are going to be getting, uh, getting early preview copies to, to give it a try. I'm a big fan of Vengeance and all its incarnations, and I'm looking forward to seeing what they have come up with. And so that's Vengeance, Roll, and Fight. I can't wait. Me neither. Uh, we got to play Let's Make a Bus Route a couple years ago. I loved it. Now there's going to be a Let's Make a Bus Route the Dice Game. So it's probably it's just going to be a roll and write type thing. Plan out your bus route much like the other one, except you're going to be using dice. I am very much looking forward to it, even though I loathe most rolling right games but we're still perennially optimistic yes i will wait to play it like charlie brown tilting at that football yes on the topic of games from japan the tgs game show was uh, wrapped up recently and one game caught my eye it's called safe battle by game and dodendo and this is a game where you're safe crackers and you actually have to listen for audio cl clues produced by the components. So there's not like a soundtrack or anything, but there, you have to listen for the right clickies to go. I, I'm not, I'm not terribly clear on the specific details. What I do know is that I'm always on the lookout for new games that test new kinds of skills. And the only other game that I've ever played 
that tested your auditory recognition was Mord im Arosa, a game where you dropped cubes down a tower and you tried to listen how far the cube dropped down the tower. And so I'm, I'm quite keen to see if uh, Safe Battle is any good, and uh, we'll try to track down a copy if we're able to. My last bit of news is we just talked about uh, Warhammer Underworld. They just came out with a Dire Chasm set, which was fairly new, and it had two factions and all the pieces you need to play. But apparently they didn't think that was enough, Mark. They have to have a new starter set. So this starter set comes with uh, two factions, the Storm of Celtis, which is more giant empire guys with crossbows or type thing, and they get a cool griffin. And the other faction is Dreadpoor's Wraith Creepers. Both look interesting. But Sorry, what was that again? Dreadpoor's Wraith Creepers. Oh, dear. Oh, you love it. You know you love it. Um, Everything about the Games Workshop aesthetic bothers me. I just, it's... They spin the wheel. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's like this random orc bash. It's it's, it's this thing. It's fantastic. (laughs) I don't know. It just seems odd. You only get one map. There are no magic dice. So I'm assuming that none of these factions use magic. So you'd think that would be in the starter set. Whereas you get both of those in the Dire Chasm box. This is bizarre because every box has been a starter set. This is this is why I'm confused. Yeah, now. I'm confused too. So this starter set is going to be $80, whereas Dire Chasm was 100 so I don't know why you wouldn't just buy Dire Chasm. That's very strange. Or maybe they wanted something that was actually called a starter box and they couldn't go back to the original. I don't know. That is very strange. Because that, that that's one of the virtues of the product line of Warhammer Underworlds. There have been starter boxes in regular rotation at all times, as opposed to a lot of other product launches where, you know, you either can't get the starter box or you can't get any expansion materials because they're constantly out of print. They've been supporting the Warhammer Underworlds line sufficiently consistently that there's always been a box available, which is one of the virtues of the product. So it seems strange they would complicate things this way. But then again, we are not aligned with the Games Workshop hive mind. So. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic this week, which is probabilities. Well, I, I'm not, I didn't do this because, you know, of the title of randomness, but my, my points are, in fact, all over the place. So I'm hoping I don't, <laughs> I ho- hoping I don't miss anything. Well, I would just like to point out uh, a, a couple of historical quotes about randomness that, that amuse me greatly. There's a line that's misattributed to Napoleon that was actually uttered first by, well, according to available records, uh, Cardinal Jules Mazarin. Which is when uh, inquiring... I think you already got your French in this episode. Uh, no, I, no, no. I don't think you get to go to the well twice. Jules Mar- Mazarin was Italian. Oh, okay. I'm so. sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was uh, uh, Giuliano Mazzarino. I, anyway. Uh, Mazarin would not ask of a general whether he was skillful, but instead would ask, is he lucky? Which... I wasn't falsely attributed to Napoleon, although apparently Napoleon inquired as well, because Napoleon, uh, very much like myself, would rather be lucky than good. And I'm reminded also of a line by Isamu Dyson, a character from Macross Plus, one of the only Macross properties to make it to North America heretofore, who said, luck is one of my skills. Two important notes about this. Uh, Isamu Dyson was voiced in the English dub by Brian Cranston under a, under a pseudonym. So if you're a pseudonym, so if you're a fan of Brian Cranston, you can check out one of his earlier performances before he got big. And secondly, uh, very recently, the longstanding license dispute between North America and Japan has been resolved. And so there's the possibility of international distribution of other Macross properties. Although as a huge Macross fan, I could say I don't know where they would start because they are all super weird. So. <laughs> 
So let's talk about this. All right. So I think we're talking about in-game randomness, in-game randomness, as opposed to like setup randomness, as you know, you know, random setup or weird stuff that could happen, stuff that you have to deal with while you're playing games. And I feel sometimes this can pull you out of the game. Like sometimes when it's too random or it feels like it's, it's, uh, singling you out. It makes you feel like you have no control, that your choices are limited and your choices don't matter. And sometimes you feel helpless to the situation. Yeah. Nothing makes me more frustrated in the game than arbitrariness. Like when someone, we talked about this before when we talked about whining and the things that makes me want to start whining is, is the notion that something is happening and I can't understand why it's the, it's the incoherence of it that sometimes bothers me. So what appears to be consistently bad dice results or bad random results or someone targeting me, what I feel arbitrarily, which in turn feels random. But I do think that one of the things that you, you've pointed out, which is absolutely relevant, is that internalizing probability is an underappreciated skill in board gaming. Now, I have absolutely zero opinions on how to get good at any kind of board game. Well, other than the notion that if you find yourself consistently doing badly, one thing that you can do is just spend some time to internalize probability because knowing a little bit about probability in related fields such as statistics helps you be, number one, more media savvy, but number two, helps you appreciate what's going on in these things. And, you know, the omnipresence of dice rolls, knowing that, you know, when when you're... Uh, you know, roughly 30% of the time you're going to get a hit when you're firing at Space Hulk, but then with the sustained fire, that, that proportion goes up to around 55%. These are helpful things to know. Now, sometimes games try to hide it, and we could talk a little bit about how games try to hide these things, but being able to just internalize the, 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 the results or the probability from a simple throw of two six-sided dice, you know, it, it seems like the kind of thing that's worth, you know, the 10 minutes necessary to sit down and understand it if you play a lot of games. And what's amazing is that some gamers don't. Some gamers I know who play lots of games, they, probability past a simple, you know, throw of a D10, because a D10 is pretty, you know, works in 10% increments. It's pretty obvious. For them, it's just a black box you know, if you, if you tell them that you need to throw 2d6 and you'll hit on a five or higher, they have no idea what that means. All right. Well, since we're talking about dice, let's go into dice. Sure. And how do games make it so it's not so random? So I have dice pools that, like, you know, you form a bunch of dice, you know, all you roll tons and tons of dice or they use the system that we love where you roll a bunch of dice and all you need is one success and it does one hit. You know, you're not going to roll, you know, it doesn't matter how many hits you roll. You only get one success or there's like the games workshop method where you just have multiple rolls, rolling to hit, rolling to wound, rolling to see if your wounds are cursed, rolling to see if your <laughs> curses are uncursed and rolling to see if you can go home yet. And yeah. then there's the custom dice, you know, they have, you know, the, all the extra symbols. Sometimes, you know, they have multiple successes or, you know, stuff like that. I've said before a number of times, and again, about things like Warhammer Underworlds, I like it where you're rolling a large volume of dice and where any individual throw is not going to be incredibly determinative. And I thought as a good, good point of comparison, two excellent games that I'll play anytime. You have Warhammer Underworlds where you're rolling a small number of dice and a single hit can take out your leader. And there's precious little you can do about it. Compare that to For What Remains. 
by David Thompson. And for what remains, the most that can happen in almost all instances is a single hit, and you're throwing a large number of dice to determine whether or not you're going to get that single hit. And because you're going to do more attacks over the course of a game, even if two games last the same amount of time, the probability curve is going to feel a lot smoother and probably, in point of fact, be a whole lot more evenly distributed in one as opposed to the other. And then let's go into cards. I know there's probably a lot more about dice, but wait, like I said, it's all over the place here. <laughs> Things they do to sort of smooth out cards is they have a, like a draft, a draft system of cards. So, you you know, you have multiple to pick from or you draw, you know, draw two, keep one, draw four, keep, you know, two, that type of thing. Like Niroshima Hex, draw three tokens, keep two. And then there's fighting games where knowing all of the cards you know, we'll, we'll smooth out that randomness or Twilight Struggle, knowing all the cards, it won't feel so random once you get to know all the cards or graduated decks. The one thing that I love is, you know, you, you know, they have layered decks. So, you know, you roughly know you're going to get weak stuff at the beginning and then it increasingly gets harder or more complicated as you go down or however you want to graduate it. That's another great way to keep games not so random. One of the things that bothers me about trying to master the probability of a certain card deck is that cards, by their very nature, tend to introduce a level of opacity in terms of evaluating the odds. So on one end of the extreme, you can just have a simple throw of the dice, simpler the better, or the less math needed the better. Again, I guess the easiest one would be it would be a percentile die or, or d10s, where you know the number you, you need to throw. Obviously, for a lot of people, a 2d6 throw is going to be almost as transparent. And then you can customize the dice, which makes them less transparent. You can have the dice system be really obscure. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later. But then anytime you introduce cards as the way of resolving the element of randomness, that lends an element of opacity in terms of evaluating what's going on. Now, sometimes that's for the good. Sometimes you deliberately don't want players to be crunching the specific number or probability of success of every individual action. That leads to a better play experience. But cards... It really depends on how you introduce them in terms of controlling for a random element. I just want to contrast two games. Again, two games that will happily play any day of the week. One of them is Goa by Rudiger Dorn. And their cards, I think, are used in a very bad way for resolving colonization checks. Because if I fail, that's because I pulled bad cards off the top of the deck. And then when you try the same action next turn, you have a better chance of success precisely because I took it in the face. That doesn't feel good for either party involved, generally speaking, as a way to mitigate randomness. On the other hand, but this isn't necessarily a feature of cards, Combat Commander by Chad Jensen, the way it uses cards to resolve roles is it just has in your deck the all the, re, the expected results of 2d6 represented twice in the deck. So there are two boxcars, uh, two snake eyes, uh, you know, 12 sevens of, of, of varying descriptions. And so if you miss, if you roll the bad result, well, that's in the discard pile now. And you know that it's not going to come up again before the next reshuffle. It's not, you don't go through every card for a dice roll, but you get the idea. As you get bad results, that increases the likelihood of good results for you later because your opponent has their own deck. So there are ways to do this. And some people all, well, I, I hear people, some people express, well, cards are always better because they're less fluky. It's like, well, it depends. Sometimes their lack of flukiness makes the probabilistic outcomes worse. Well, that kind of system leads me to, at the end here, I have like less luck, like things like Scythe, Kemet, and Game of Thrones, where everyone has a deck of cards and they slowly work their way through it and you know what they've got. And so you can sort of parse out what they have left. And so there's no randomness there. Yeah. Another bad thing 
some games do is when they're heavy on theme, they use a deck of cards for like the event deck or some other deck. And they use this to like force the story down your throat and you get these weird swingy things that happen that you have no control over. It, yeah. And, and it depends on how much the game communicates, how random these cards are going to be. Cause sometimes you expect it to be more random than it is or less random than it is. And that mismatch of expectation can be bad. I've said before, and uh, I'll say it again, I've got no problem with randomness in games, but I don't like it when the fundamental engine of the game is driven by randomness. Two examples spring to mind are most of the Catan games. The system will starve if nobody has any wheat. You just sit around waiting for wheat to enter the system. Nothing happens until then. Another one is a game that a lot of people love, Game of Thrones. I don't want when I get more troops to just be randomly coming up or when I need to feed them to become randomly coming up. I, it rubs me the wrong way. I am the opposite. I love it. That's why I love the first edition. Because you could go almost a whole game with no mustering. It was, yeah. It was fantastic. Was it? Anyway, I, I don't want to lose this point about uh, car, sure. uh, about event cards, that type of thing. And because it's not so bad when it affects the whole table. But when you like draw an event card and it singles out one particular person yes. and, it, and it hurts them very badly, that's where it seems completely arbitrary and random. Right. So it's not so bad when it's like a random card. Oh, everybody, you know, loses something. Then, you know, everyone sort of shares in the in the pain. So it's not so bad. Right, and sometimes it, it feels random even though it isn't. Like, for example, you know that there are going to be a lot of cards and events in, for example, Black Rose Wars that are usually calibrated towards penalizing the leader and benefiting everybody else. So it's not really random per se, but when it comes up and suddenly you just have this specific card that got flipped up that costs you a whole bunch of points that you worked hard to earn, it feels random and it's not something you can plan for. Because a lot of people equate being unable to plan for with randomness. And experientially, they're fundamentally the same in in a number of contexts. And true, you have I have a note here is uh, sometimes you feel uh, player interaction is random. So like when it's a worker placement and someone just happens to go where you needed to go, that's completely random. And look, player interaction. <laughs> and then how crucial is each chance versus the game length? I have yes. Down here. So like like you said with Warhammer Underworlds, how crucial that one die roll could be versus how long the game is going to last so you know you could have your leader taken out which in a you know 20 minute game isn't super terrible it's bad but if it was a two-hour game and that happened in like the second round of of 12 then that would be awful that reminds me of a game that i think channels both the randomness of cards and the randomness of dice really 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 well and that's claustrophobia the combat resolution system is a, is a breeze. You roll a certain number of d6s trying to get a certain threshold, and so you can work out the average expected return of every attack, and over the course of the game, you're going to be rolling enough dice that it tends to smooth out, and no one attack is going to be hugely determinative in and of itself. It's not like early on in the game something's going to happen and you just can't recover. Furthermore, the way they introduced some of the cards in the newest edition of Claustrophobia there are cards that will allow you to compensate for dice results. They they say, well, you can roll the dice, but if you don't get the results you want, play this card, and now the die counts as a four. And that's a way that you often complain about randomness of cards exacerbating the randomness of dice or vice versa, but that's a way that clever use of, of cards, even though drawn randomly, can beneficially impact the results of dice. Same thing with cards that you can play to let you re-roll dice. Or... Yeah, let me go through all these very quickly because I have all kinds of silica. So there's upgrades of all kinds. You can increase your hand size so you know it won't be – so you have more to choose from. You can get 
you know, tokens that let you re-roll. You can get, like you said, all sorts of modifiers to whatever. You, we have trucks and blackout that will, you know, let you modify your dice. We have trading in Catan if you don't get the goods that you need. We have the workers in Castle Burgundy that will let you, you know, increase your dice or lower them. We have, uh, Damio, uh, you can discard leaders to change the dice. We have Command Chits and Space Hulk that will sort of peter out, you know, when you get bad rolls or stuff like that. So I'd like to have a brief discussion about hand management. I think this is going to be a bigger topic because I think between the two of us, you and I have very different opinions about the virtues of hand management. Because returning back to a commands, any Commands and Colors game, the, the logic that I've internalized is that you shouldn't commit to a front unless you have some follow-up cards to back it up. And that's where the hand manager comes in play. You'd like to launch that attack on the right flank, but you've only got that one right flank card, and you don't want to leave your troops just sitting there. So hold off for a while. Wait until you draw the repl- uh, uh, some more cards that'll let you follow up. And that's where hand management mitigates the inherent randomness of the cards. If it's the case that every time you're pulling from the deck, you're hoping for that one thing that's going to make your plan work, I don't think that's a fault of the game. I don't think that's the game being too random. I think that's you not engaging with hand management. No, you have them on the run. You have a right flank card. Grind them to the ground before they get away. Look, I respect your impulse, but I'm just, <laughs> just saying that that's why hand management is. It's one of the reasons why uh, Dominion I find an incredibly swingy game because you need to get you need to draw cards in the right combination. There's no hand management in Dominion because you just get your hand. Contrast that with something like Mage Knight, where you can sit on the card turn after turn after turn until you can finally unleash the, the right combo. The right. same, some of the same fundamental structures of deck building can lead to wildly different probabilistic outcomes based on whether or not there's actual hand management. Should this remind me of a rule that I don't know if we covered during that game, but do they have that in this particular command? Can you discard any card to activate one unit in any flank? Uh, no, some cards will let you do that, but not any card. Gotcha. Yeah, multi-use cards are another great way to mitigate the effect of randomness. If it's built into the system that any card could be discarded to do any one thing that can help take the sting out of out of that kind of uh, yeah when um, you're locked in a in a situation where you just need to do one yeah. thing and again just to, just to extol the virtues of commands and colors for a little bit the, the the way the deck works because you're pulling from a shared deck my right flank cards are your left flank cards and so it actually encourages us to focus on different areas of the board and have different different strategic priorities compare that to the <clears throat> misprint in red alert where they accidentally made, made that there were far, far, far too many right flank cards in the deck and not nearly enough left flank cards. They tried to pass it off as a deliberate design decision, but that I think could charitably be described as a fib. Yes, hand management is very crucial. And like you said, there's many ways you can just, like you said, make sure you have multiple cards of what you need or ways to, like they usually use it as like a penalty, right? You know, you have to spend a couple of times to build up the chit so you can, you know, change things do, change the cards to what you need them to do. So how do you feel about, I want to ask you a very pointed question coming back, to, uh, returning back to something we mentioned before. How do you feel about dice systems in particular that are deliberately obscure? I'm thinking there are a couple of different ways to do this. One of them is custom dice where the dice faces are not simply parsable. So, like, if you're playing Cthulhu Death May Die, it's pretty easy to observe that the dice will, that each individual die is likely to give you half a success. And so you can you know, figure out how many dice you're going to need to roll in order to reliably kill a cultist or how many re-rolls you're going you're gonna to need to spend. But then, on the other hand, you have dice systems that are marvelously clever, 
but difficult to intuit. I'm thinking about games like Infinity or games like any of the Precinct Omega games, games where it's like, well, I'm rolling 3d20 and my successes will be above a certain, uh, below a th- certain threshold, but any die that you roll above a certain value will cancel some of that, and you can math it out, pr- just probably not in your head. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that leads to too much fun. I, I I don't mind. There's other games like that, that that break it down even easier. You know, you both roll dice and you sort of my number of successes cancel out your number of successes and whatever you have left over. The hero's game it, model. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. It's weird. I uh, In my heart of hearts, I have a great deal of enthusiasm for some of these incredibly obscure dice systems. I, again, I mentioned the Precinct Omega dice system. Most of the time, most of the Precinct Omega games that I play are, are, are now solo or co-op. And so I don't mind that I'm not able to easily in, in, intuit how likely I am to hit with any given thing. But even when it's competitive in, in Horizon Wars, as opposed to the Zero Dark games, uh, the Zero Dark or Infinite Dark, I really do. It's a fun little dice game, and it's so clever that I that I, that I can't help but appreciate it. Even though I have no idea what the expected value is for any throw, it's weird because it, it's almost like a glimpse into what it would be like not to understand any degree of of predictability or probability, and just enjoy the simple ignorance of not knowing what the expected result will be. In in, uh, and I'll never forget the time when I discovered the going back to infinity, going back to a a, a website called Infinity Math that will actually give you the expected outcomes of a whole bunch of different scenarios. And I actually just spent a few minutes plugging in some scenarios of certain kinds of units and it blew my mind and it really kind of tore the veil down and showed me how fragile units are and how useful cannon fodder is. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to say that I've ruthlessly exploited this insight above people who are overly impressed by the value of their intruders, but I've murdered a fair number of intruders as a result (laughs) This leads to sort of like the excitement of randomness, right? So games like Risk, you know, when you're like chucking dice back and forth and, and, you know, your lone two guys survive against, you know, 10 attackers or, you know, it comes down to, you know, the final roll of the game or, you know, if I could just draw this one card that I know that's in that deck, then I'll, <laughs> I'll score, you know, if this is a spade, then I win type thing, you know, so sometimes randomness can lead to like exciting finishes or exciting turns, right? Well, I'd like to, to to sum up with something that I've said a number of times before in the context of whining, in the context of being a good a good gamer and being a good sport. I think that it is very, very he- important to be gracious and to over-exaggerate the impact that luck has played in your successes and to overly-exaggerate the role of luck has played in your opponent's downfall. Just to be able to commiserate whether you're winning or losing, nobody likes it, and of course I do it all the time. And you're like, yeah, you're doing great, but but think about all the results you've gotten. And of course, in in jest, when I roll that incredibly unlikely result, I do say justice. But it is very, very nice after playing a game where I feel like maybe I did my best, maybe I didn't, for the victor to say, yeah, well, you know, I I really feel bad for those results you pulled. It's just a nice way to be gracious, I think. And closing, I just want to hit some last points I didn't get to. Roll and rights do this thing where, you know, you roll all the dice first and then you sort of have to work around with what you've rolled, right? Mage Knight does this sort of thing with, you know, their magic system. You know, you sort of, they roll it. Mage Knight to a roll and right? Wow. Everything really is Mage Knight. It exactly. So you roll (laughs) your magic dice out and you sort of have to plan your turn around what's available. Um, and then children's games, they all work around, you know, complete randomness, right? To keep things sort of balanced and exciting. 
And then there's like the weird silliness that comes out of randomness where people say not to touch their dice because their dice are special. And there's the, oh my goodness, there's a, the role playing, you know, where they have, you know, their special, the special, D, special yes. D20 oh, and their dice that. collections. And then there's things that I've actually run into where, where people get cards off of, off of a deck, right? So I have, Let's just go through the scenario. I have a deck of, let's just say, 30 cards, right? And they're randomly sorted. Is that not correct? Now, does it matter if I go clockwise or counterclockwise? <laughs> exactly. Or I, or I give them a trend? This has happened multiple times where people have said, wait, you, you're supposed to deal to that person first. And I, I'd never get it. It's like, these are just random cards right. off the top. Like, why does it matter? Well, it, remi- it actually reminds me of something we observed when we were playing Street Fighter, the miniatures game. There are some effects that say, you know, discard X cards off the top of your opponent's deck. Well, in the normal game mode, you reshuffle when your deck runs out of cards. So there's no sense of being decked. And so you might speculate, well, you know, if you force somebody to discard cards off the top of the deck, that might deprive them of their ultra because it could be off the discard pile, to which my response was, or it could just accelerate the rate at which they get to their ultra. It's random. You can't tell. So <laughs> so why does it matter? So why? What, yeah, exactly. So sometimes you get those little little behaviors that seem to indicate you don't quite appreciate necessarily the full probabilistic impact of what's going on. Yeah. And so that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for randomly joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. You can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.